Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero emissions energy, zero emissions buildings and zero emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radioteam at beyondzeroemissions.org. Councils are our theme tonight. As federal and state government seem to be in the way, many local government areas are just getting on with the transition to zero carbon emissions. But they're also facing the tricky legal problems arising from sea level rise. Byron Bay stars in this radio show. As council there has been involved with Beyond Zero Emissions and we'll talk to Tiffany Harrison, who's the project coordinator of the Zero Emissions Byron Project. Then we'll talk to Stephen Bygraves, who's the CEO of Beyond Zero Emissions. Later we'll talk to Amanda Carl. She's also a friend of Beyond Zero Emissions and she talks about local communities from Gloucester, New South Wales, to Nepal and East Timor as they try to improve their situation vis-a-vis climate change. Then we'll hear lawyer Tiana O'Donnell from the Institute of Governance and Policy at the University of Canberra, giving a talk on litigation around the case of sea level rise at Byron Bay. And lastly, we'll talk to the Mayor of Byronshire, Simon Richardson. He was fated at the Paris Climate Conference, so hang in there, he should talk to us a little bit after 5.30. We're at Myuna Bay at the Beyond Coal and Gas Forum. Now, beyond is the favourite word of everyone here, and I'm really glad that our uh, Beyond Zero Emissions has got that word into everyone's vocabulary because they're thinking beyond, thinking about transitions. We're in an election year, so that's also on our mind, and climate change should be on everyone's mind. It's an extremely urgent problem. Most of us have our head in the sand, don't want to look at it, but it is really urgent, as we've seen in the Fijian cyclone. Um, Typh was Winston recently really wiped away. People are still in evacuation centres, and these sorts of weather events are going to get worse in the in our lifetimes and we we need to be doing something so the transition and going beyond what we've got already is front and center of our minds i have with me uh, tiffany harrison who is the project coordinator for zero emissions byron so byron bay think of the lovely you know relaxed lifestyle of byron bay but they are getting behind the zero emissions project also stephen bygraves who's the ceo of beyond zero emissions who you should know very well by now 
Now, Tiffany, I'd like you to tell me about the process of getting a community from just being a, you know, relaxed, hedonistic lifestyle place to getting really engaged with the possibility of having zero emissions throughout the community. Yeah, so I think Byron is a is a perfect area because it does, even though, as you say, it is a relaxed lifestyle, it does have a big background. The whole of the region, the Northern Rivers, has a background in activism and change. And there was, in the 70s, it was the area where environmental activism really started in Australia. And I think it's about um, looking at our history and reinvigorating that. And part of it is about vision. So I think a lot of people... Um, are, as you say, aware of the urgency of climate change. But what we need is we need vision for how to move beyond that Mm. into how to transition. So looking at something that inspires people and to say, well, we can take responsibility and we can take authority for what happens in our shire, in our region, in our communities, and look at what we can do to have major systems change, not just changes that will only... um, you know, affect climate change and, and help to stop climate change, but also positive changes that will affect every aspect of life. And I think that people have seen the excitement and they've, they've seen the possibilities yeah. of this project and really got behind it. So there's been a, been a massive groundswell of support for this project right from the get-go, which is really exciting. Well, um, a lot of um, communities do already have climate action groups. These have been going for a decade. And, uh, Stephen, you mentioned transition towns. They have those groups in many places, which, are, you know, work very quietly behind the scenes to make this transition. Um, what, what, what do you have to offer? What does Beyond Zero offer in those sort of five sectors that can be uh, transitioned? Yeah, look, this, this project really came out of the Zero Carbon Australia plans, which BZE has been working on for the last 10 years, and they're at a national scale. And we thought about moving beyond the political system and empowering communities to be able to adapt our plans from a national level to a community level. And then uh, essentially uh, in the absence of federal action and state and territory action, take uh, empower communities to, to undertake the actions they want to undertake. And we're about um, utilising the existing capacity and infrastructure and, and energy within communities and many of these communities already have been transition towns or have land care groups or have food groups or have energy groups, renewal community renewable energy groups. So it's about taking all of that capacity and bring it under this holistic framework of zero carbon. So zero carbon Australia, mm. then we've got zero carbon communities and zero emissions Byron is a project within all of that uh, zero carbon framework. Mm. And it brings all of the sectors together, energy buildings, transport, land use and waste, uh, into this zero carbon holistic framework. It empowers communities to take the action that they want to take. Many many communities just want to get on with it mm. and they can take our research and we can adapt it to their own specific needs. Yes, at this conference I've heard quite a bit of frustration with the back and forth of you, know, you get one party in and then you get them out another party come in, they rip up the last one's legislation. We can't go on like that with something so uncontroversial as climate change, really. It should be completely motherhood that we have to get on with it. So um, tell me, in Byron, what what are the first areas that they've 
started on? Have they started with changing the source of energy or have they started on transport? What, what area have they started? So it, as the project is a, is a really a long-term project, um, basically the, the beginning of it is setting up the process. So the groups have formed and the groups that have been looking at where our emissions are at the moment so that we understand the current situation within our region of where the emissions are coming from. So, for instance, for the land use, we can say, well, we could say let's just replant all the trees and that will solve the problem. Yeah. But if that's not where the issue of emissions is coming from, we need to obviously we understand a broad picture, but the groups have been doing that research so they can really get to the basics of what it is that we need to change and then from there the groups are developing strategic plans they're looking at um, the framework the national framework that beyond zero emissions has set up in terms of the blueprints for transition for australia but applying that to a local scale and applying the technology and solutions that exist across the world and looking at what actually fits for our region so for instance um, as again for the land use area is it cattle that we're looking at can we say well cattle is is a major issue and um, we need to work in terms of reducing those emissions from our our cattle farming or is it um, replanting of riparian vegetation or for the energy sector what fits is it a um, there's been talk about different solutions is it um, all rooftop solar or is it a concentrated micro farm of solar Mm -hmm. or what sort of technologies actually really work for the shire so that is what the communities are going to be working on this year developing those plans and then from there engaging with with major stakeholders and businesses who are working in those sectors already and looking at what can be implemented at the local scale and and who implements that and and the aim is that there'll be a whole bunch of projects that are initiated from this that the Zero Emissions Byron project can work as an umbrella framework to enable and enhance those projects to go forward. So, Okay, so you've got a plan, you've got how to do it, what to do, but the next thing is the people who will do it. My experience of groups like Climate Action Groups is a dozen people and often a core even smaller, who really do a hard amount of work. Um, How are you going to take that to scale so that you empower a lot more people? Yeah, it's a really good question, Vivian, and I think it comes back to what Tiffany was saying about engaging with the community and all the community groups and stakeholders, including business. So, you know, buildings is a case in point where... um, We've got the National Buildings Plan, the Zero Carbon Australia Buildings Plan. We can take that methodology to uh, apply to households in Byron where we can identify the efficiency improvements that can be undertaken in houses and residential and commercial buildings. Then we can look at the potential for rooftop solar. There's incredible business opportunities that will come out of that. We'll be able to create LED lighting businesses, solar businesses, insulation businesses. So this will empower businesses in the community. And uh, with land use, there'll be food businesses. In waste, we've already got a new business starting in Byron about around waste because the community is going, "Wow, there's this business opportunity here." So Can I think explain that a bit more. Well, there, there's there's some people already in Byron who who uh, collect waste for some of the big festivals that occur in Byron, and they're going, "Wow, this is a business opportunity to actually collect the waste, recycle it, uh, and get paid for that." And um, so they're going, wow, this is a real business opportunity. It's not just about the community groups themselves. It's about creating new businesses. And this is a really important part of the transition. It's Mm -hmm. come up a lot in the conference here about, well, if we're moving beyond coal and gas, what's the alternative? Mm -hmm. And the alternative is 
community-run businesses around food, around buildings, about lighting, solar, um, revegetation, land care. It, it's around. It's about reframing what a community is, and in fact, coming back to what communities really want, not some external company coming in and taking their resources and mm. taking all of the money at the same time. It's actually about um, empowering from the grassroots communities to be able to do what they want and, and to run their own businesses within their own um, uh, what's the word within their own uh, context yeah so it's really exciting okay well Tiffany can you tell me about other communities you've been involved I think Moreland Council in Melbourne is one that listeners would know can you tell me about progress that you've seen in other councils sure I mean so I was involved in more of a we're looking at planning around Darabin I know Moreland has been doing a lot of great work but before um, I started working on this project um, I was working on looking at how communities can do this work without council support so luckily in Byron we have the council support and we've you know, there's the drivers coming from council as well to get mm. this done. They they see the imperative and they see the opportunity for their shire. But for places, um, we looked at what could a community do. Say for Darwin as an example of people who do want change, but how do we how do we get that to happen? So mm. we're looking at the processes of, of how you engage a mass number of people to then lobby the council. That's so that's been one um, coming from a different wave. You know, you do need a council on board, so you, you engage people and ask them what they want and have a skeleton framework of options and a process and then we can do engagement work and ask the council to adopt this as well so that's that's some of the work I was doing and and also um, before here looking at I was up in um, working in the Mackay region where that is affected by um, coal mining so there's coal mines up there which are um, the fear is that when they go that there's going to be an economic collapse so actually um, heard about this project through Amanda Carl who was working up there and doing work around the economic transitions that communities um, can do away Mm. from coal so a different side of the picture altogether. Okay, well, we've talked about the the community people. We've talked about the types of things they're going to do. And uh, I believe the zero emissions community will operate on five sectors, which is we've talked a lot about energy transition, waste, land use, uh, building retrofits, efficiencies in building fabric and transport. We haven't mentioned much about transport, but it seems to me that community might want all these things and have lots of energy and you could build up with town hall meetings and lobbying and door knocking. You can get a lot of people involved, but what about at the local government? What are the factors of success that make, you know, really turbocharge this? Look, I think um, this is an emergent field, but from what we've seen so far is a key factor for success is having the mayor involved. So the mayor of Byron, Simon Richardson, has been a key proponent and supporter of this from the top down, and that sort of sends signals throughout the community that the, the mayor's engaged and the council's engaged. Then other factors include having a really engaged community and different community groups, and the community in Byron has really switched on. They're already doing amazing things. It's about harnessing all of that and bringing it together in this in this framework. Um, the, as Tiffany mentioned. The key first step is establishing what are the current emissions in each of those five areas, transport, buildings, land use, waste and energy. And then we'll be identifying, and the community will be identifying, strategies to bring those emissions to zero over a 10-year period. Mm. The, the, the important thing in all of this is 
um, having the community initiate, drive, uh, um, own the whole process. And when we move to implementation, it will be really important that the community again identify the projects and this will bring in funding we'll have to be really creative about where money comes from and which businesses are involved and and that will be a very challenging time for the project but i think there's all phases of the project are challenging yeah um and we'll just take it step by step and i think we're all confident that we'll get there one way or another Thank you. We've been talking to Tiffany Harrison and Stephen Bygrave. And stay list- tuned, listeners, because after the break, we're going to talk to Amanda. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for $49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org. Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. You're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show and we're recording from Myuna Bay where the conference is called Beyond Coal and Gas. So now I have Dr Amanda Cahill who's um, a former board member of Beyond Zero Emissions, so a friend of our project and she's now the director of the Centre for Social Change. So welcome Amanda. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Vivian. Look, I don't know anything about your project, and it's so dire that we do affect some sort of uh, social change before we safely transition away from coal and gas. Uh, tell us the principles of it. So look, we're doing a lot of work at the moment with communities around the idea of transitions. So we're not just going through a massive technological change, which is what BZE is helping Byron do, and I'm part of that project as well, but we're going through a massive economic change. How do we build an economy beyond fossil fuels? What does that actually look like? across the board. What are the economic opportunities for regional and rural areas around new technologies and actually doing that shift? So turning that sort of crisis into an opportunity. But also what's the future of small-scale local economies, especially in rural and regional areas that are affected by coal and gas? How are we going to replace coal exports? What's going to happen to workers? And how do we make sure that communities um, can come out of this and not just surviving, but even potentially thriving from this change? Mm. Well, um what is the sort of economic change that you see? Um, well, I think what's the first step is actually a conversation from communities themselves because each context is completely different. Like I'm doing work up in the Sunday region at the moment where they're trying to avoid the big Galilee Basin mm-hmm. and um, Abbott Point port expansion. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to avoid big projects. So they're going to have very different kind of economic solutions mm-hmm. and ways forward based on the industries they've already got. Mm-hmm. So what are the new opportunities around agriculture, for instance, in that area? That's very different to somewhere like the Latrobe Valley, where they're going through looking at big um, closures of big coal-fired mm-hmm. plants. They've had 
a manufacturing industry. They've got lots of trade. So they've got a very different kind of economic mm. context and the solutions moving forward are going to be different. So what does that look like? How do we transform manufacturing, for example? Mm. What's going to happen to those workers? Can they be retrained? Can they stay in the area? Do they need to be redeployed? So these are really big questions that we're grappling with at the moment. Well, can you give me some hints on this? I've been looking at this for about two years trying to find someone who can talk clearly about what the transition for those workers might be. And we've just had the approval of the Adani mine with the jobs being the key thing. You know, we had to approve that mine because of this king's ransom in jobs that we're going to get and everyone's saying that's fraudulent there's not that many jobs in it but the government still is saying that's their main reason so how can we break that you know decouple that from you know well-being um there's lots of parts to your questions there. So number one is the work that's already been done by people like Tim Buckley and actually Bu- and Richard Dennis and the Australia Institute in busting the myths around that. And I'm finding that when I'm going to areas, they're going, oh, but it's about jobs. But just asking the question, is it really how many people are actually employed in and around mining in your area or will be versus how many are employed in services, in health, in education, in agriculture, in retail? And once you start asking that question, people actually go, oh, just a minute. And so it's actually getting people to look and do that analysis. But in terms of opportunities, if we look at overseas examples, there's a lot of policy work that needs to be done around transition packages for workers particularly. So that's how to, it's about retraining, retiring people who early potentially, mm-hmm. redeploying workers to other areas as things are phased out over time, or relocating. Um, there's also the sort of support that's needed if people are moving from being an employee to a small business owner, so sort of small business um, support and training. So that's one area. But there's also um, around different industries and opportunities for regional areas with new technology coming Mm. up. So there are new opportunities around small-scale manufacturing that is powered by renewable energy. Mm. But it's not just about renewable energy. Again, it's the opportunities from a zero-emissions economy. So it's retrofitting buildings, energy efficiency. It's different technologies around waste. It's yeah. and land use. So the stuff that BZE is doing is absolutely crucial as to innovating and thinking about new economic opportunities for regional areas. Well, I was thinking that we had a launch in Sydney the other day and Gerard Drew said, you know, the excess electricity that's in the grid at the moment, you know, everyone says, oh, we don't need to build any more because we've got an excess. Well, why don't we move quickly towards electric vehicles and everyone will be plugging in. I thought, oh, this conference next time I come, everyone will plug in their vehicle to their, you know, <laughs> plug-in thing and uh, refuel and it'll be the thing of the future that and, and South Australia and car manufacturers will now be electric vehicle manufacturers. Or, Why didn't Kevin Rudd think of that? With, or you know, parabolic they, mirrors, so mirrors for a yeah. concentrated solar thermal in Port Augusta. That's yeah. what they're talking about. So, and the other big, the other big economic opportunity is also rehabilitation, which we've heard a lot about in, mm. yesterday, um, and will be today. From uh, Drew Hutton's doing some work on that. Okay. There's a lot of jobs that wrapped up. If we're actually doing rehabilitation of mine sites and plants properly, um, there's a lot of jobs, and including um, skills that workers are. Already have been mm. transferred to um, retransforming those sites and actually turning them into something else that's going to be useful moving forward. Okay, what about overseas? I, I always feel very ashamed of our refugee policy, for example, and our lack, our cutting of aid budgets. And I was in Timor recently, and it seems to me we're stealing their oil, really. And uh, you know, it's a very, very poor country. They would so welcome help to sort of put in renewable energy instead of um, diesel. Everything's run on diesel there at the moment. 
So what about overseas aid or not even aid, what perhaps you could think of it in a different term, a different frame of our obligation in our region? The reason I actually came to Beyond Zero Emissions initially was I was travelling around India with a bunch of engineers. I was working for Engineers Without Borders. And we were visiting these tiny little villages in the foothills of the Himalayas, like really material poverty, um, water issues. But there were, salt, there were tiny little... Um, cells, PV cells on people's roofs for lighting. Mm-hmm. And then there were all these massive um, wind farms and that were being invested in, in in Mumbai. And it was something like 30% of uh, Maharashtra, which is the state where Mumbai is, mm-hmm. of the energy was renewable energy. And I just went, and this was 2010, and I was like, what? Huh? How are they doing that here with the poverty? And even yeah. places that are just really struggling have solar lights and this was before the real PV took off in Australia mm. and Australia has so many resources mm. why aren't we doing this and mm. I got quite angry and I was um, so and I met Brad Schultz who was a volu- uh, BZE volunteer oh, yeah. in Brisbane I was just raving about this he's like oh you should come to this meeting with this group Beyond Zero Emissions they're trying to get Australia and I was just like awesome I want to get involved in that so um, so there is actually a lot of stuff happening overseas yeah. I work a lot in the Pacific yes there's still a lot more work to be done um and the issue, I guess, is I'm working in Fiji at the moment. And I know there was about five solar projects, electrification projects launched that just now got wiped out by the cyclone, so, yeah. which is a bit heartbreaking. But yeah. there, there is some work being done. Um, I know the Australian government has taken a big chunk of the aid budget to put into renewable <laughs> energy projects. But, yeah, that, there's, there's always more. And Timor in particular, I've worked yeah. in Timor, and mm. they've got some massive challenges there yeah. and opportunities at the same oh. time. Okay, well, look, thank you very much. Perhaps, Stephen, could you, you've been to Sri Lanka in the last year. Was that what you were wanting to say? Or I had a, I, yeah, it's Stephen, I just had a question for Amanda about, you know, you talk about it as an economic transition as much as the social and community and environmental transition. I think you're exactly right. You know, Australia's had this history of boom-bust cycles. You know, we had the wheat boom and bust. We've had the gold boom and bust endless times. We've had the coal boom and bust. So I think I'd like you to, if you wouldn't mind commenting on, you know, Port Augusta is another example where governments and haven't necessarily responded to the community concerns. You know, the community for many years said, we want to go solar thermal. They knew coal was impacting their health. Now we've got the two coal-fired power generators closing without a very well-managed transition, in fact, a very, very poorly managed transition. So I was just wondering whether you could comment on that and how, what the role of government but also communities in in, in more being strong in advocating maybe uh, and empowering themselves and then how to take that to the next level of, of really being... Taking, taking all this into their own hands so they can actually manage that in a really smooth way because at the moment it's very, very abrupt changes that yeah. occur. There's a few different ways in. I think what I'm seeing at the moment, which is really interesting, is local councils are all over this. Behind closed doors, they're saying to me, we should have been doing something about this for a long time and we've been caught unawares in every single area. But they, they're kind of strapped for knowing how to start that process around economic planning. So I think there's a lot of energy there to be built on. At the same time, there just still needs to be some kind of high-level policy and thinking about you know, how state and federal government and unions can then work together to actually work out the sort of funding that's needed, different policies that are needed, because as... 
the, as coal-fired plants close, like what's happening in Port Augusta, it happens really fast. So we actually need to be ahead of the ball mm-hmm. in terms of what are their obligations to workers, what are, what are the funding, who needs to, who should be paying for rehabilitation and worker transition. So there's work to be done at that level. Um, but we still... I think where I've just gotten to in the last month is I I thought, this is obvious, here are some really clear ways we can go around policy. And then talking to MPs, ministers, shadow ministers, and just going, oh, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, maybe in five or ten years' time, when the communities are ready to go and Mm. local councils are ready to go. So I've just resigned myself to... um, saying I can't just do the work on the ground. We actually need to start mobilising people and building a movement around the concept of transitions. So by the time we get to not this federal election, but the next federal election, we've got a movement around this and a really strong campaign with a clear ask that's holding government and companies to account. Um, So that's the next step for us is actually going, how do we build that movement? Because the energy's there on the ground. People are saying, where do I sign up? But we need some really good processes around the economic planning and action. We need organisations like Beyond or emissions and others to come in with some of those technical solutions that people can run with mm. that are going to stimulate the, the economy. Um, and we've got to get some models working that we can actually show state and federal government and the unions about what is possible. This is the way we want to go and it needs to be community-led. Well, maybe we can go to India to see the models. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> India... Germany's got some really good models. I'm going to the US in July um, to go and look at places that have been going through the coal, you know, moving away from coal a lot longer than Australia and seeing what they're doing over there. So, yeah, it's a lot of work to just be done to get our heads around what's working, what can we learn from the mistakes of the past, like logging and forestry, for example, and how do we move forward on that. So they're already kind of ahead of that economic planning process. So I'm going back in a month with Jarrah Hicks from the Community Power Agency. We're going to run a workshop on how do you actually turn an idea into reality? How do you do a feasibility study and a business plan to move that forward? Well, you said you're going, you've got more work than you can cope with, like these small towns. I'm very surprised to hear that because this doesn't make the headlines. Well, what's it like? What, why are they ahead of where the government's leading? Um, because they know their community and they know where it's come from and they're hurting um, or they're worried about what's on the horizon. Um, and it's been absolutely surprising. I'm going to tiny communities like Bingra and Warialda, which only have about 1,000 to 1,200 people in them. And people are already thinking about what's going to happen to my community in the, in the future. They're going through massive drought. Mm. They see people leaving the town. This is a bigger re- rural and regional development mm. question. So we sit down and we talk about well, what do you have? What do you want to keep in your economy? What do you want to mm. develop for the future? What sort of jobs do you want for your kids mm. in the future? And it's quite amazing the range of skills and resources and assets and mm. enthusiasm and talents that people have and that passion to love their community. They yeah. want to stay there yeah. and they want to find a way to make it work. Yeah. And so there's so many ideas come out of that. Um, the ideas are there, the resources are there, the passion's there, even sometimes the money is there mm-hmm. to actually get things going. What they're missing is a process around what do we do with this? How do we actually lead our own economic development? Because they'd, they've seen what's happened in the past with experts coming in with an answer. Yeah. It's not sustainable and yeah. it doesn't work because it's not owned by the community. Yeah, well, I love hearing this because Beyond Zero is into the technology, you know, the big blueprints and when we did the high-speed rail, yeah, I could just visualise all these country towns coming to life. Not all of them, but, you know, on that rail, yes. Brisbane to Melbourne, yeah. it, it said, I think they researched that in most most 
the, the population, a large number of the population is living within about 80 kilometres of that high-speed rail, which would take them to the main cities, to doctors, to universities, to anything like that, but they can still live in these smaller places. Uh, do you see that that sort of being a big help to regional development, but not too much, not like not to turn them all into mega cities? Oh, absolutely. It's that kind of infrastructure issues. And it, interestingly, in when I've done this work overseas, often when you're mapping out all the strengths as a basis for economic development, it's not just coming up with new business ideas or some yeah. big industry to replace everything. Um, often it's actually identifying what's that one piece of infrastructure that's missing that would open everything up, mm. that would actually strengthen the sort of business ecology, the mm. business environment. Or, you know, is there a service that can actually support all the businesses that are actually there? So, for example, agricultural areas, you might have different crops being produced, but farmers are just selling at a really low price, that, and they're so they're totally slaves to the yeah. ebbs and flows of international markets. Mm. So then it's like, okay, well, if we could just process it, and, and so what's missing is a shared processing centre. Mm. They have the skills to do it, mm. but they don't have access to proper hygienic facilities or packaging mm. or marketing support. Mm. So sometimes it's the infrastructure like the high-speed rail that can actually unlock a whole lot of different things. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. That was Amanda Carl and uh, Stephen Bygraves and Tiffany Harrison. Thank you. And you're listening to Beyond Zero on 3CR Radio. I'm Andy. That was Vivian speaking to Amanda Cahill, a close friend of BZE. Uh, we'll be coming back shortly with Vivian's third part of our interview with Tiana O'Donnell from the Institute of Governance and Policy, University of Canberra. Just a moment. My name is Adrian Burugaba. We're at a crucial time in history now where these great mega mines are coming to us and asking us as the traditional owners of the land to sign away our uh, native title rights and interests to that land. These mines are, are, are very dangerous and they're detrimental to not only just the environment but the, the laws and customs that you know are, are based in that land that are very important to the Wangan and Jagalinga people. The most important thing is for us to maintain our cultural integrity. Some of these mines will be here right into the future, 40, 50, 60 years from now. We could lose our identity. We're going to make every effort to stop this mining company from destroying our land. I'm going to convince all of our people to stand together as one people and one voice. And then we're going to ask all Australian people and people from all over the world to stand with us and unite with us to fight this fight. This is not an easy fight for us, and we're asking everybody to stand with us to stop these mines from destroying this land. We don't need this coal. We don't need them. We don't need their money. We need them to leave our land alone. We need to protect that land. Our forefathers, my father and their grandfather, they had their their money, they had their wages garnished and money taken off them, and so there was no inheritance for us. And all we've got left now is our inheritance is the land, and that's our responsibility. Let's hear from Tiana O'Donnell. 
She's a lawyer from the Institute of Governance and Policy at the University of Canberra. And thanks to UTS in Sydney for this recording. Tayana is talking about sea level rise at Byron Bay and her thesis from the legal point of view of the type of court cases that can arise when property is damaged by sea level rise. So it was against this backdrop that I commenced my PhD research in 2009. So in my PhD I undertook a detailed policy analysis of each uh, council and I interviewed residents, employees of council, elected body, the elected councillors of each council, state government and the insurance sector. And I had a number of questions, but the ones I'll, I'll talk about briefly here tonight um, included the perception of the role of law for climate adaptation, how local government made decisions in the context of sea level rise, and whether, a perception that prop- whether there was a perception that property value would influence adaptation. And particularly on the third question, some highlights for me were the way people thought about property. And by people, I mean all of my respondents, not just the residents who own those properties. I went into the PhD thinking that they were going to talk to me about financial value. And they didn't really mention that at all um, in any of the interviews. They spoke about having lived there for 20 or 30 years, having an attachment to their home because of the memories they'd created there, having an attachment to the locality, even for people who had just moved into a new home, a newly approved home on the beach, um, even those people had an attachment to the locality and the community that they had within within those areas. In addition, I'd ask questions about the role of law for climate adaptation. And there was a lot, of, a lot of significant data around local knowledge and what local knowledge of climate meant in these communities. And I raise it now because the New South Wales coastal law reforms, at least the draft of them at the moment, stage two, makes reference to engaging more with local knowledge. And local knowledge can be a double-edged sword. There are people in communities who are receptive and responsive and engaged, particularly on climate science issues, and there are others who believe that their knowledge of their community is the be-all and end-all, and it doesn't matter what any expert says to them. And there were a number of people that I interviewed who said to me, I don't care what climate scientists say, I don't believe in climate science at all, I've lived here for 50 years and this beach always moves and it's a normal thing and we shouldn't worry about it. Uh, Someone else drew um, an excellent uh, graph of the tectonic plates and explained to me, this was a retired engineer, so a highly well-educated, articulate person, explained to me that the tectonic plates were the reasons why there were variations in sea level, had nothing to do with climate change, was an ordinary thing, they'd lived there for a long time as well, and they were going to believe their interpretation of their local knowledge over any expert that would come in and talk to them. So it's really difficult for local councils on the ground engaging with their communities to try and engage everybody at the same level. And we know that there are long-term hazards associated with sea level rise. But it's also important to consider that coastal hazards are here and now. Um, The risks are here and now. This is an ordinary king tide. There's nothing special about it. It happens twice a year um, along the coast. This sort of thing happens twice a year. It's um, very exciting, particularly for children, when it happens because the water comes right up to, to the doorstep. Ordinarily, the beach is about 10 metres out. So there'll be the grass and then there's sand 
and the tide ebbs and flows, but it never comes over the grass except when there's a king tide. It's important... Images like this are important because they bring home the fact that there are going to be risks to property now, irrespective of what happens with sea level rise. Sea level rise and climate change just makes the urgency of proper risk assessment all that more important. My third case study, Byron Bay, poor Byron Shire Council. They get talked about all the time because they're so interesting and so um, different to what most councils have done. And, of course, they've been um, the subject of quite a number of, no doubt, expensive litigation proceedings. And they have wealthy property owners who can afford to do that. And the Vaughans in Byron are a perfect example of, of this. So this image here is of, not of the Vaughan property, but a property two doors down. Um, after a storm in May 2009, there was significant damage done to Belondrel Beach in Byron Bay after that storm. It was a, an East Coast low combined with a king tide event. So we had big waves and a big storm, big angry storm. Caused a lot of damage. So just to situate... Um, this piece of litigation that I'm about to talk about, the Vaughans in 2009, um, lodged proceedings in the Land and Environment Court after this storm. And for a bit of context, if anyone doesn't know the history in Byron Bay, um, they have had a, a policy of planned retreat since the mid-1970s. Uh, another big storm came through then, wiped out a township called Sheltering Palms, and so the council adopted a policy of planned retreat that was subject to um, being enforced when certain triggers are met. And that applies, or applied, to Belondrel Spit. Fast forward to 2001, the council issues itself a development consent to construct a sandbag wall on Blondrell Beach uh, with the purpose of protecting the public beach but and public access to the beach, but also with a subsidiary effect of protecting private properties along the beach as well. So they build the sandbag wall, it sits there for about eight years, and then in 2009 this big storm comes along and the waves overtop this sandbag wall that's about two and a half metres high and essentially rip it out and with it rip out about four or five metres of the Vaughan's private title and damage damaged the beach as well, damage the public access way. It caused a significant amount of damage. So the Vaughan's attempt to install temporary protection works immediately. Um, they hire some engineers to bring some big concrete boulders down the public street and try to put them on the beach, and the council sends someone out and says, no, you can't do that. We're getting an injunction in the court, so they, off they go to court, get the injunction. It's granted um, on the basis that placing concrete structures on the beach would cause further or potentially cause further erosion down the beach. Um, so the injunction's granted, they can't place the concrete boulders on the beach and proceedings commence on the construction of this development consent that the council issued to itself in 2001. And particularly, the, particular, the questions before the court were, was the consent validly issued and is there an obligation under the consent to repair on the council to repair and maintain this sandbag wall? And if so, did they do that properly? And so the litigation went on for about two weeks. Um, the, event, the case eventually settled in February 2010 in favour of the Vaughans. That is, the council said, yes, we had an obligation to maintain and repair it and we're going to put it back in place and put some sand in and do all these, these things to fix this sandbag wall. Expensive litigation um, that hasn't ended. So just recently and, and last year, there's been ongoing debate and discussion 
in Byron Council about the proposal to build a rock wall joining a number of small little rock areas across along the beach into one big wall that will serve to protect both the beach, it's argued, and the sand dunes between the beach and these private properties. The community up there is very, very engaged and outraged by this proposal because it completely goes against the policy of planned retreat. They don't want their taxpayer, their, rate pay, their rates to be paying for protection of these few private property owners. They don't think it's going to really protect the beach. There's been some very heated um, discussions at council chambers with members of the community. And of course the homeowners there are quite angry too. They've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars helping council protect their properties, going through expensive litigation to continue to maintain that. They're going to help fund this wall, you know, costing them $100,000 each purportedly. And they want their existing use rights protected under law. And so Byron Council is, um, is in a really tough position. It's, um, it's been in a tough position for a very long time and it will continue to be in a tough position. And, and it begs the question, we, we know um, as scientists broadly, we know that there are options protect, accommodate, retreat, but actually implementing them day-to-day at the coalface, which is what local councils are doing, coastal councils are doing, is very, very difficult. For planning authorities, it still is very important to ensure that decisions are reasonable, that appropriate decision-making procedures are followed, and that all relevant considerations are taken into account. This includes information on sea level rise. Which measure of sea level rise you use is still open to debate, and this is the problem. This is the big elephant in the room. You're listening to 3CR Radio. Australia is a crime scene. It's unfinished business, this crime. People don't understand that it was a military exercise. It was military in the first fleet. It was Captain James Cook. It was Captain Arthur Phillip. Right through the history of Australia, it's a military exercise. Our people have suffered greatly because the white man is not prepared to act honourably and legally. It's still the case in this country today. This is 3CR. Our guest tonight is the Mayor of Byron Bayshire. His name is Simon Richardson. So welcome to the Beyond Zero radio show, Simon. Thank you very much for having me. Look, I've invited you because you are a real legend on climate action. I was at a solar conference yesterday and Christine Milne was there and she Uh, mentioned that Byron Shire was really fated at the Paris climate talks and that local government was really the way to go and that that was where the lead was coming. And I'll play the clip of Christine saying that at the end of this interview. But tell us how the compact of mayors up in Paris uh, will affect council efforts to reduce emissions. Yes, um, yeah, it was great uh, to see Christine over in Paris. And what Paris brought out, particularly that compact of mayors, 
whereas the the fact that uh, work is happening from the ground up and the compacted mayors is a group of uh, hundreds upon hundreds of mayors from around the world who have committed themselves to 100% renewable uh, emission, a zero emission yeah. future for their for their areas. Lee was inspiring because you know for someone from Australia and from Byron to be sharing table a table with the mayor of Reykjavik in Iceland, yeah. you know where all the great work that's happening in Scandinavia sitting next to the mayor of um, Bonn, Germany, and uh, opposite the mayor of Austin, Texas, etc. I got exposed to some fantastic initiatives and commitments from around the world. And, and to be honest, even just sitting on the bus on the way uh, after that uh, particular luncheon, to be chatting to mayors from some of the West African countries and, and really getting both an understanding and appreciation that this is... We use the word global in a way that uh, we almost kind of forget the ramifications. But uh, when you're speaking to a mayor from Sierra Leone or Cote d'Ivoire and they talk about the fact that they are committed to um, adaptation, resilience to the cl- to climate change, and it, they understand that if they don't, their community and their society as they know it will cease to exist, it really brings out the fact that this is a truly global response to a global challenge. And yeah. uh, it was great being part of it. Well, is this compact a sort of uh, agency now? Do you share information? No one wants to reinvent the wheel. And I know you're doing a lot of work with Beyond Zero Emissions to get Byron Bay really yeah. ahead as a zero emissions community. Is this going to be shared? Yeah, look, it was one of the things that came out of... Uh, I mean, there are a couple of different organisations that are working in this space and they are all very, you know, collaborative uh, in their sense. Uh, ICLE is really the global leader in local government responses and, and initiatives in the sustainability and climate change sort of uh, area. Uh, and there's various groups that sort of interact in and around uh, ICLE. It's, you know, it's part advocacy, it's part uh, alliance creation... And it's, uh, you know, also part, you know, a network and, and, and clearinghouse of information. Yeah. Well, could you tell us a story? Tell us a, a story of one place, perhaps in Italy, where they're really leading the way. What does it look like, a zero emissions community? Well, interestingly, uh, obviously some of the places in Scandinavia were really uh, exciting to hear from. Uh, there was uh, a Swedish town in Volka. But I was speaking to the mayor there and, you know, the fact that they, they're really focused on closing all the loops as far as their emission uh, sectors. And so, you know, for them, they're using, you know, their waste, their organic waste. Uh, not only are they, are they recycling and, and uh, collecting it all locally, but uh, and they're using it for, you know, biodigesting and energy creation. They're also now harvesting it to, to use into uh, a fuel for their cars. So... You know, there's a little example of just a place going that extra step forward. Uh, Aspen, Colorado was a fantastic place of inspiration. The mayor there is a wonderful fella, and uh, they are 100% zero emissions. They're 100% renewable. Uh, so, sorry, they're probably, yeah, they're, more accurately, they're 100% renewable rather than necessarily um, uh, 100% zero emissions across all the sectors. But, you know, to, to hear uh, his story, and, and Aspen has a very similar makeup. As Byron, as your listeners may know, I mean, Aspen's sort of uh, part of, in, in Colorado, it's a pretty alternative, progressive thinking place that is also pretty expensive. It is very much a tourist town with a pretty strong progressive local community and, and one that gets set over holidays. 
So anyone knows Byron, you know, it's pretty similar. In fact, yeah. even the numbers, they're both about 10,000 people. So to see, you know, to, hear, to listen to Steve, you know, spell out the fact that they created a real intention and a 10-year plan, it gained great social licence from, from day one. So that gave the leaders a bit more confidence that they can keep pushing it. And, uh, you know, they achieved 100% renewable in that 10-year time frame. I mean, that's just two, they're, they're two cases, but yeah. really from Ethiopia to Asian countries, to uh, Europe, and, and even in Australia. I'm speaking to Adelaide and, and uh, Canberra. You know, there's a lot of amazing things that uh, are happening around the world. Yeah. Well, look, uh, you're a coastal community, and um, I know sea level rise must be giving your council a few headaches and new responsibilities. What are you doing about that? Yeah, look, yeah, you're right. We, uh, it is absolutely. In fact, we've been listed in New South Wales as one of the erosion hotspots. We've got a beach here called Belongil, which uh, is, is really in the gum when it comes to sea level rise projections. In fact, so is uh, a fair chunk of Byron coastline. And so, you know, we've, we've put sea level rise projections in our uh, planning provisions. Interestingly, the state government in New South Wales tried to back away from uh, going, uh, supporting IPCC sort of uh, standard projections and, and they actually, they, they withdrew the necessity for councils to adopt uh, those measures and just allowed councils to choose their own projected levels uh, as they saw fit. Uh, luckily, Byron and uh, most of the other coastal councils just disregarded that and went back to the IPCC yeah. uh, level. So, mm. so we have embedded that into our planning. We are, I've got to say, still in, in some pretty strong political wranglings uh, on council with some who are just trying to build a wall to respond to sea level rise as opposed to others like myself who are trying to look at it from an, um, I guess, a... Uh, adaptation and resilience point of view but uh, trying to work ways where we can work with the sea level rise or at least you know acknowledge realities and and um, try to spend our money I guess on things which are more defendable you know mixing and balancing a, a personal uh, individual's right to defend themselves or even a council's or a state government's right to defend their infrastructure against the right of our community and, and even the communities not yet born to actually still enjoy a beach. You know, they're, they're the questions that we're grappling with at the moment. Um, and it's, look, it's far from resolved, I guess, in Byron, that's for sure. That's right. And people aren't homogenous. I, I like the logo on your um, Byron Bay Council that says many communities, one future. And I yeah. know you're very aware of this climate future that we're trying to avoid or prevent the worst of it by getting emissions done. Um, yeah. I imagine it's very hard to get ca- people to understand that you're using council rates for a visionary project. Do you find that yeah. hard? How hard is it to get well, them to look, come along with you? We're not really using many uh, council, much council rates for the zero emission Byron projects. If I had my way, we'd be using a bit more and, and probably... Uh, you know, like in most projects, the lack of finances is probably the biggest uh, sticking point, and particularly now. Yeah. What we are doing, though, is that uh, we've basically joined with uh, Beyond Zero Emissions and, and uh, so many of the organisations and groups across the Shire to create a model called Zero Emissions Byron, where we, uh, you know, we have the aspiration to be a zero uh, emission community across the sectors of building, energy, land use, transport and waste in 10 years' time. so but What will you use the money for? I mean, you will have to raise money through the rates, oh, won't you? Oh, look, absolutely. Oh, when it comes to the actions, yeah, sure. There's, uh, look, there's going to be all sorts of, uh, 
uh, pools of money that we're going to be trying to um, get some funds from. Look, you, you're right, eventually we'll have to go more explicitly to our community to stump up. And our community is a community that is kind of demanding council does do this sort of thing. So I wouldn't be expecting any great backlash from the community. That's great. It's, it's just getting some of the councillors on board. That was Bye. the Mayor of Byron Bay, uh, Simon Richardson, and now we're going to hear from Christine Milne. In Paris, um, Byron Bay was really fated as an example of what a local government can do. Sydney was also um, really written up in lights for what uh, they're doing there in terms of renewables. And now you look at what's happening in Canberra, uh, where you're seeing in the ACT some really um, interesting and very uh, exciting, actually, new uh, examples of pilot studies of a whole suburb, uh, which I understand will be uh, off-grid. So there's all kinds of exciting things happening at the local level so I definitely think that if the feds don't move and we can't break the NEM as it is the key to it will be essentially getting local government to sign power purchase agreements with a local uh, community based production company if you like so that all all your citizens can basically generate their energy and there is a market for that with local government so it's, it's going to depend on economies of scale, of course. It's not the ideal. You're much better to have a national scheme that everything's integrated into, but in the absence of that, I think local is a really good way to go. And that's finishing off the show with Christine Milne. Remember her? She was a former Australian senator and leader of, of the Greens, and uh, she was a regular contributor to this show and a friend of this show.